This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Sagar Gupta is an executive at a Dallas tech company called BioRev. A few years ago, he was frustrated with his employees. He thought they weren't getting enough done. There was a dream project that I wanted to complete, and it was just not on time. And I somehow sensed that the productivity is not up to the mark. Gupta started looking for ways to boost his team's productivity. And he found this monitoring software that promised to show him exactly how his employees were spending their time at work. It only took a couple of minutes to install. I got a shocking revelation. My employees on an average were just working three hours a day. Facebook was the number one thing that they were doing. YouTube, another one. They were constantly on WhatsApp. Today on the show, how technology is making it cheaper and easier than ever for corporations to monitor their workers. Often their employees have no idea it's even happening. Welcome to The Journal, a show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. And I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Friday, July 19th. We're moving to a world where it's not just about swiping your badge in and out at the end of the day. You have a cell phone, you have an iPad, you have a laptop, you have a badge that can have Bluetooth on it. Our colleague Sarah Krauss has been reporting on the growing use of workplace surveillance. There's a lot more tools that you use to do your job that are connected to the internet or that can detect how you're working and moving around. If your device is paid for by your employer, anything that you do on it is fair game. What kind of data exactly is being collected? In less intense cases, it's the metadata of your email, the to, from, time, how quickly you're responding to things, calendar invites. But at a more forensic level, there are employers who every 30 seconds take a screen grab of what you're looking at, what you've typed, what websites you're visiting. And if they wanted to sort of rewind or like watch the tape from earlier in the day, they could pull up each moment of your day and see what was on your screen. Literally how you're spending every second of work. The thing that I don't think I understood the scope of was when you have a mobile device that is using workplace applications, one of the pretty common practices is doing a geolocation stamp of where your login is. Like if you log into your email or some other application that you use for for work, just logging in, your employer can see a record of where you logged in from. Right. Part of that login is for security's sake, but the what is sacrificed in the process is very granular information. Where you go and get coffee in the morning, where you go out with your friends at night, what doctor are you going to, or um, what workout class do you frequent? This is about your employer now having access to every detail of where you travel and how you live your life. That could presumably also include personal information, too, like the text messages that you're sending or, say, the photos that you took over the weekend. In some cases, yes. 
you know, say you leave and, you know, have been accused of stealing IP or, you know, misconduct, that type of information could be used against you on your way out. For some companies, it's used to monitor your productivity. How are you actually spending time at the office? Are you, you know, sitting at your desk texting a friend? Some workers tell themselves like, oh, I was on WhatsApp, that's secure. Well, if it's pulled up on a screen that is capturable in that way, it doesn't matter which app it is. It's something you're viewing on your screen and that's being captured. Monitoring his team's productivity at work was exactly what Sagar Gupta, from the top of the episode, wanted to do. And his new surveillance software gave him all of the information he needed. So I get a very beautiful dashboard, and it's divided into several segments. One is the productive chart, one is the usage chart, and the idle time. What time they were completely idle and just not doing anything on their workstation. Gupta noticed that some workers were spending a lot of time on WhatsApp, which they were logging into from their work computers. When he confronted them about it, the employees said that they were using WhatsApp for work. But that tracking software Gupta installed on his employees' computers was capturing screenshots of their computers every few seconds. And those screenshots, they told a different story. Yes, we basically present them that, look at this, we have the data And I'm sorry, we don't see that you were working. You were actually chit-chatting with your friends. And then what happened to them next? They were rebellious. We had to coach them. And uh, out of them, two were non-coachable. So they themselves just left the company. But other three of them absolutely changed their path of work. Employers are trying to find more and more ways to measure or like tangibly quantify things that previously were not measurable or capturable or knowable about how their employees spend their time. So figuring out things like who's influential in the office or is there like a hidden star that is slaving away every day that you just don't know is that productive or who's going to too many meetings, which managers aren't meeting with their subordinates enough or what makes good team chemistry. There's also a workplace safety component of this. Some of the technology that I and my colleagues have come across in this is gunshot detectors or sensors that try to detect skirmishes between employees. And that's, you know, meant to quickly address and help people in the event of workplace violence. Technology that monitors employees is actually turning into big business. Large corporations like Microsoft have developed their own products to analyze data about employees. So Microsoft, I think many of us are familiar with Microsoft Word or Microsoft Excel, and they have an Office 365 suite of tools that are, you know, chats or conferencing or, um, you know, Word and collaboration tools. And one of the products that they offer on the back end of that is data on how your employees are working. So, you know, how long they're spending on email, when they're sending those messages, what their after hours work is relative to their during the day work, which managers are meeting frequently with their employees or which teams collaborate the most often. One of the things that one of their executives said to us is they only look at employee data in groups of five or more. It's not looking specifically at how Joe Smith spent his time. Wow. And so what is Microsoft starting to do with all this data? So they they sell as a product, this data analytics services. They sell it to companies like Macy's and Freddie Mac. The CEO of Microsoft has charged his staff with making Microsoft the biggest client of it. Uh, um, meaning that they have They to... use it themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they describe it as helping improve productivity and giving managers tools to do their job better. I think they would argue that it helps provide nudges that, that might lead to... Um, a better use of your time at work. 
it's almost like money ball for the office in, in the sense that like you're trying to pull out these little pieces of data that might actually show the way organizations work and reveal something about how they can be improved. It is, but that raises an important point, which is that what good looks like or what's considered the best outcome is often dictated by the company's own experience with what has worked well in the past. Mm -hmm. But something to keep in mind when that is your baseline is what biases are included in your current workplace. You know, if you've always been, for example, a male-dominated company and the most productive sales team was based on a very homogenous group of people. Is that to say that that's the only productive way going forward? Is that just your experience with what's productive? Are companies telling their employees about this? Not always. So an approach that I have seen more often than not is some sort of disclaimer when you log into your computer that just says, you're about to log on to a system. Anything you do is the property of your employer, flat out. In the U.S., the legality of it is pretty broad. Employers do own whatever data you throw off at work. And so what companies wrestle with is the difference, the very broad difference between what feels creepy to an employee and what is legally permissible, which is a lot. At BioRev, Gupta didn't tell his employees he was tracking them, at least not at first. He started by quietly installing the software on 25 computers. Eventually, the team did find out, and later, Gupta even put up big leaderboards that showed how employees' productivity ranked against each other. We kind of rounded them up and told them what we did. And at that time when I told them that, hey guys, we did this to motivate you. We did this for yourself, not for the company, but yourself. Then they accepted it. Well, not everyone accepted it. A handful of people quit, and that was on top of the two workers who left after Gupta looked at their WhatsApp chats. There were a very minor amount of people that were offended by it and that they thought that this was not right. They basically said that you are spying on us and you don't have confidence in us. So out of 150, we had seven employees that actually quit their job, and we, we were ready for that. So for Gupta, there were costs to implementing this new level of workplace surveillance in that some employees quit as a result. But there were even bigger gains. Gupta said that within a few years, the company's revenue more than doubled. I asked Sarah Krauss if it's even possible to say no to being tracked by your employer or if quitting is the only option. Sarah said that a lot of people just accept it as something that they have to put up with. As an employee, you don't have a lot of choices. Your employer controls the devices that they issue to you and the software that you use and the real estate that you sit in when you're at the office. So the best option that you have is to really silo your life between personal and professional devices. And I think we sort of work in a time now where all of that has converged and it's easier to sit on your couch at home and have your work-issued laptop and just like open your personal email while your work email is open because it's all in one place. But the reality of what you're sacrificing from a privacy perspective is profound. So if you want to control it, you can either not take a job at an employer that does this, though you may not know that your employer does it, so even that's pretty hard to solve for, or you can be really diligent about siloing your personal technology and your professional technology. Gupta insists his employees benefit from this kind of monitoring. But there are no well-established rules of the road that govern what this type of data can be used for. In fact, at BioRev, 
Gupta's data-driven approach eventually led the company to do something that could strike some people as an invasion of privacy. Gupta told us about a time when one of his managers noticed productivity was dropping for an employee who was based in India. So they dug into her computer records looking for clues about what was wrong. We saw that her YouTube activity is where she's just listening to sad songs, which is different than the pattern that she used before, because before she would like listen romantic songs or live music or something like that. And on Facebook, she was actually looking at one particular profile again and again. So we inquired, my HR actually got engaged. And that's when we discovered that she recently broke up with her longtime relationship. And that's affecting her work. But they didn't figure this out from asking her. They called her mom. And then they threw her a potluck with what they had learned were her favorite foods and held a singing competition trying to cheer her up. After she was done, the HR just came in and said, hey, you know, we are like a family and, and this is what we do. The employee told the Wall Street Journal that the whole event was, quote, a little embarrassing. But she said she was touched by her colleagues' efforts. For some people, they, they may hear these stories and they may get a little creeped out, you know, that employers are looking at their what they're doing on their computer and that they're able to find out these sorts of personal things. How do you respond to those kinds of concerns that people may have? If they are using their personal laptop at their home, and if you are monitoring that activity, that is invasion of privacy. But if they are coming to workplace, anything that you do on a corporate machine is company property. Every organization has a right to monitor the activity for the safety and confidentiality of its company. And how do you think you would would feel personally if this software was installed on your computer by somebody that was supervising you? I would thank him for sure. It keeps me straightened up. In fact, I do have this software installed on my computer as well. I get a daily report on my own productivity of how many hours I spend. So I practice what I preach. In the end, it's up to each company to decide on its own how or how much surveillance to implement at their workplaces. A lot of it is like, well, we're helping you. We're trying to get the most out of our workforce. And this isn't, we've already, we've always had this data. What we're doing is just using it now. And by the way, we're using it in a way that like helps you develop professionally or that helps a manager not overlook you. Um, you know, that, that we're helping to spot things that we were missing before. One of the like pushbacks that I've gotten from companies about this is they would say, well, you know, we, in the old days, we would like send a guy around with a clipboard and he would look at whether you were in your seat. So is it better to have that happen or should we put a sensor on your seat and not have someone walking around looking at you? Like pick your poison. Oh, it's um, a totally different experience though. I mean, like if you see somebody walking through the clipboard, you know, to sort of like sit up straight and, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, put, you know, put your cell phone away or whatever, but yeah. like you forget about the sensor mm-hmm. that's on your desk after, you know, maybe a few hours. Yeah. But couldn't some of this data be wrong? It could. There are a lot of different ways in which some of this data is incomplete. You know, one example, there's a startup that also parses calendar invites and chats and emails. um, And one of the things that they measure is if you're engaged in a meeting. And so one of the ways you can capture that is if you had a calendar invite for a certain time and you're sending a lot of emails during that time, it suggests that you're sitting in a conference room sending emails instead of paying attention. Mm -hmm. What if you never went to that meeting? So what do you think all of this means for the average worker? I think it means that we are all becoming 
the type of employee that we thought we weren't. I think it means that we're all becoming the tracked, monitored employee, and that that moment where you relax at your desk is maybe not as relaxing as it once was, that the velocity of which you send messages, that when you start and end your day, though you may think that is not something that is tracked about you, in fact, it is. And in fact, there we are moving closer to a world in which everything that we do and say at work is recorded and measured and used as a way to give us feedback. What does that mean for privacy? In this whole conversation, you are using your employer's device in your employer's office with their software in their facility. Like, the expectation of privacy is completely different than it is in your home or out on the street in the public space. Some lawyers won't even take a workplace monitoring case because they don't think you have a chance to win. Your employer has long controlled your livelihood, but I think that the information that they now have that has a sway on that livelihood and your performance and your career trajectory is that much richer because of all this data that's being collected. After the break, how a film critic finagled his way into covering the moon launch. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com journal. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Canva. It's time to ditch your old presentation programs at work and try Canva presentations instead. It'll help you create stunning slides in no time. No design experience needed. Just start with one of the designer-made templates or generate something in seconds with AI. Then polish it up and get ready to wow your audience. It's that easy. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Tap the banner to learn more. Welcome back. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. Fifty years ago this week, Wall Street Journal film critic Joe Morgenstern was sitting in the grass by a Florida lagoon watching the launch of the Apollo 11 mission. A lot of journalists were there. But Joe, who at the time was working for Newsweek, might have been the only film critic with a front row seat. And it was thanks to his own gumption that he got there at all. I was in my 30s and was loving what I was doing, but also as the Apollo 11 shot approached, I just wanted desperately to cover it. I I love, loved then, love now, aviation and science. It was one of the great events of our time, and I wanted to be in on it. Joe's opportunity to cover this story emerged in an unusual way. He had reviewed a NASA documentary on the Apollo 8 mission, the first mission where humans orbited the moon. NASA did this quite gorgeous documentary of the Apollo 8 mission, which was the mission that involved the first spacewalk and also generated that truly iconic photograph that we now call Earthrise, of Earth as a, a blue orb in black space. And I was so enchanted with the movie that I kind of got away from myself and wrote this 
I thought, self-enchanted, semi-surreal review. After that piece came out, Joe received a note from Ben Bradley, the revered editor of the Washington Post, which at the time owned Newsweek. It was a short note, but it was very encouraging. He really loved the review and the, the style of the review, and it caught me by surprise. And I thought that compliment was really currency that I could cash in and get the guys to send me to Cape Kennedy to cover Apollo 11. I just thought all he can do is say no. His editor said yes. So Joe flew from New York to Florida days before liftoff in July 1969. It was hot as hell. Uh, I had an uncomfortable motel and didn't spend much time in it. And I got to the launch site about 6 o'clock in the morning. Instead of sitting in the press grandstands, I just went off on my own, wandered through the grass to a place near the edge of the lagoon. You know, I was like a kid. I wanted to be close, as close as I could get to the rocket. It just sat there looking absolutely gorgeous and enormous, like a knife into the sky. The sound hit seconds after the launch began, after the tail of the rocket was enveloped in flame. You cannot have a sense of the power that's unleashed by a Saturn rocket <laughs> unless you're there. When the thing went off, I was really terrified. It was absolutely terrifying. I thought my something terrible was going to happen because my skeleton felt like it was being shaken apart. Here was this enormous rocket going off with this enormous blast that just threatened to undo me. I was sitting and just weeping, you know, in a kind of ecstasy. I, I hadn't expected anything like that. I didn't know what to expect. All these years later, covering the moon launch still stands out in Joe's mind as the most exciting assignment he's ever had as a journalist. Both because it was the moon launch and because he dared to ask for it. The lesson is be bold. But for me, it was probably the most cockeyed, daring thing I'd ever done. I didn't know what I was doing. I just did it. That's all for today, Friday, July 19th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. We are your hosts, Ryan Knudsen and Kate Leinbaugh. We're produced by Pia Gadkari, Ricky Novetsky, Sarah Platt, and Willa Rubin. Annie Rose Strasser is our supervising producer. Griffin Tanner is our engineer. And our executive producer is Gerard Cole. Our music this week comes from Haley Shaw, Marcus Bagala, and Bobby Lord from Gimlet. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Special editing thanks to Alex Bloomberg and Rick Brooks. And special thanks to T-Ping Chen for her reporting on BioRev. See you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening.